0: Well, welcome back to the Corinthians Seminar. And I know I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger last time, talking about the first half of 1 Corinthians 14. Just to recap a little bit of what we saw last time, we saw a lot of details about speaking in tongues, a lot of details about prophecy. And we've seen throughout that Paul's primary concern is the intelligibility of the speech being done in the meeting. And that's why he prefers prophecy. That's why he prefers uh, other things over tongues, even with interpretation. With interpretation, it gets redeemed. But as we're going to see in this next section, um, there are, there are reasons to limit tongues in a meeting, and there's not really a reason to limit prophecy or, or other prophetic utterances that are intelligible in a meeting. So that's really where we're going to pick things up. Um, so heading into the last half of one Corinthians fourteen. Uh, We're going to see some additional information about speaking in tongues in a meeting. And what we've seen so far is Paul is focused on people that have been instructed, people that know what speaking in tongues is, people that are aware of what a prophetic utterance is. So now we're going to transition to what about people coming in from outside the meeting? That's where we're going to start. And we're going to do about five or six verses on that. And then it's going to be more about the general worship service for the rest of the chapter. So... Um, let's get started with verse. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read verses 20 to 25 here. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So, in this section, Paul begins by admonishing the readers to grow up mentally. And again, it's probably best to situate this in the context of the discussion at hand. And it appears, again, that the Corinthian church was so overvaluing tongues in a meeting, um, and especially tongues without interpretation, especially tongues all at the same time. So, they're certainly doing it incorrectly, but they're also just generally overvaluing tongues. And so Paul's general admonition in light of that is to grow up, is to grow up, to be, uh, in your thinking, be mature. So uh, Fee points out that there is an interesting tie in with the Old Testament quote from Isaiah in the next verse. As Fee says, quote, in the context of the Old Testament passage Paul is about to cite, the prophet Isaiah prefaced the cited words with this rhetorical question. To whom is he explaining his message, to children weaned from their milk? In Isaiah, this was probably spoken disparagely to the prophet by his mockers. It seems likely that the apostle has this context in mind. For him, the Corinthians are in danger of playing the role of these children. In that case, fellow Israelites who rejected the word of the Lord. Thus Paul's exhortation serves both to push them to reconsider their own evaluation of tongues and at the same time prepare the way for his final argument against unintelligibility in the community, end quote. So what Fee is saying is that um, Paul's words here in verse 20 are actually in the echo of Isaiah 28, which we're going to get to. So in the context of Isaiah 28, there's this idea of Um, God explaining his message to children weaned from their milk. So even Paul's words here in verse 20 seem to be uh, in the original Isaiah context. And so uh, if the Corinthians were to continue overvaluing tongues and especially doing it without interpretation and especially doing it over the top of each other, then they were in danger of being children. They're in the danger of being children, like in the Isaiah 28 context. And the children in that context were Israelites who rejected the word of the Lord. So that is um, in the background of what Paul's about to quote here. Now I want to point out that um, we have received a different interpretation of verses uh, 21 and 22. And what I'm going to do is offer a completely opposite interpretation of it. And I know this is going to be challenging for, for many of us. And um, I understand that. And I am open to uh, you know, conversation on this. I am open to a discussion on this. Uh, but I do want to point out that whatever interpretation we come up with, it has to fit in the context of what we've, of what we've already seen about how speaking in tongues is um, not as important in a meeting uh, due to the fact that it is unintelligible and it only profits the person speaking in their spirit, not even in their mind. And wherefore, prophecy, on the other hand, uh, uplifts and upgirds and uh, upbuilds everyone in their mind and therefore through the spirit as well. So situating it in that context and then reading 20 to 25 as a unit, in other words, reading 21 and 22 in the context of 23 specifically and also 24 and 25 is going to help us, I believe. Okay, so what we're going to do to try to understand what's happening in verse 21 is we're going to go back to the passage being quoted in Isaiah 28. And then we're going to compare the language from Isaiah 28 and the context of Isaiah 28 with what's going on in Corinthians and how Paul quotes it because he does not quote the whole thing. Um, He only quotes part of it. And so we're going to learn from that as well. All right. So the original passage being cited here is Isaiah 28 verses 11 and 12. And Isaiah said, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord, Yahweh, will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Okay, that's the quote from Isaiah. In Isaiah's time, the people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, they're outsiders to the people of God. These are people who are not speaking Hebrew. Hebrew. So they're people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue. Now, in the context of Isaiah, this is specifically talking about invaders. It's talking about invaders. So what, what this is talking about is God wanted Israel to enter into his rest and repose. He wanted them to come back to him, but they refused to listen. And so ultimately, the result of this refusal to listen ended in judgment and exile for Israel and then later for Judah as well. So to give an example of how this plays out in the narrative of Scripture, Daniel and his friends were carried away into Babylon because Judah fell to Babylon later, you know, after the time of Isaiah. They had to learn a new culture, a new language, and a new way of life. And so the people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners this is a negative thing this is a negative thing so notice in the initial context the foreign languages um, are from people who are invading and are opposed to the people of God okay and notice that the result of this at the end of verse 12, yet they would not hear in Isaiah 28. Yet they would not hear. So the result is the foreign languages do not serve to bring Israel back into repentance and obedience. So I think those are two very important points that we're talking about the foreign language of invaders. And we're pointing out that even though God's trying to get their attention so they'd enter into his rest and repose, that the tongues of the foreign people did not bring them back into repentance and obedience. Now, let's, I'm going to read verses 20, verse 21 again. Verse 21 says, In the law it is written, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, notice that Paul skips the middle section about rest and repose. He skips that section, and he just talks about the people of strange tongues, how he'll speak to the people in in the uh, strange tongues, and then they will not listen to me. So he brings those two things out of the context of Isaiah. This is what Fee says, comparing the quotes. Quote, to bring out his own concerns, Paul does four things with the Isaiah passage. Number one, he inverts the order of lips of foreigners and other tongues to put his interest other tongues in first position. Number two, in keeping with the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, but against the Septuagint or the Greek text, Paul changes they will speak to I will speak and concludes the, with the formula says the Lord, probably to increase its impact on the Corinthians. Number three, he changes the Septuagint's disparaging coarse lips to the lips of others the others now being the Corinthian believers, whose speaking in tongues would have a deleterious effect on unbelievers. And fourth, most significantly, he skips a considerable section in the Isaiah passage, picking up at the end, verse 12, where he changes, and they would not hear Akuo, referring to the intelligible words of the Lord, to, and even so, referring now to the other tongues, they will not listen to, asakuo, obey me. In the Isianic oracle, the prophet is anticipating the foreign invaders of Israel. In the present context, Paul is referring to the outsiders, inquirers, or unbelievers, whom he is about to mention, verse 23, and who on hearing the Corinthians speaking in tongues would declare them to be out of your minds. His point seems to be that such a reaction would be a fulfillment of this word of the Lord to the effect that tongues does not lead sinners to obedience. End quote. So what Fee is pointing out is, is that The original context of Isaiah is talking about invaders. It's talking about how people are not responding positively. You know, the people of God did not respond positively to it. And Paul is now sort of inverting it, saying that the people of God, in this context, the Corinthians, uh, because of their speaking in other tongues, are actually going to not lead people to repentance. Because what leads people to repentance? Intelligible words, the gospel message. Uh, the words of uh, prophetic utterances uh, that, as we're going to find out, will disclose the insides of these people's hearts. That is what's going to lead people to repentance. So, uh, Thee's point, I think, he makes a great point about this passage. And it's, like I said, it's the complete opposite of what we've heard before. Now, verse 22 says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So verse 22 begins with the word thus, indicating that the logic follows directly from the quotation being used. The question is, what kind of sign is this? I know normally we tend to use the word sign in a positive sense, in a positive sense, but I believe that the word sign here is being used in a negative sense, possibly even like an ironic sense. And um, it turns out that there's a lot of support for that. The... REV commentary points out, the book of Isaiah sometimes uses the word sign in a negative sense, showing Israel their sin and their need to come back to God. So based on the use of that specific Old Testament quote, the idea that sign in Isaiah can be a negative sign, And of course, I think we also have to take into consideration the language of verse 23, which is talking about if everyone is speaking in tongues, they're going to say that you're out of your minds. So based on all of that, I take the word sign here uh, to be a negative sign. This first, thus tongues are a sign for believers, are are not a sign not for for believers, but for unbelievers. This sign at the very beginning of verse 22, it's a negative sign. It is a sign that people are out of their minds. In other words, if we connect verses 22 with 23. As Fee says, quote, The question is, what kind of sign, in light of the citation from Isaiah, verse 21, for which this is the inferential deduction, sign in this first sentence can only function in a negative way. That is, it is a sign that functions to the disadvantage of unbelievers, not to their advantage, end quote so again i know this is the exact opposite of what we have heard before but i think it is grounded very clearly in the original context of isaiah it's also grounded very clearly in the context here with verse 23 being connected to it and remember it comes in a larger context here in 1 corinthians 14 where tongues has already been minimized as being beneficial for the general community at large who knows what's going on they know what tongues is they know that it has a spiritual benefit for the person speaking they know that it's a legitimate gifting or manifestation of the spirit and yet it still has minimal benefit for the community because it's unintelligible so Paul is going to continue on that vein and amplify what it means for the outsider, what it means for the uninstructed. So again, Paul is amplifying the result for the unbeliever. He's saying that many new people will think that tongues is craziness. Tongues cannot instruct anyone, they cannot bring people to faith. And so tongues, in Paul's mind, may very well be something that hinders the new person from staying and hearing more about God. And that's what verse 23 says. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So all this logic has to fit together. All the the whole train of thought has to fit together here. And I think that makes the most sense to me. Now at the end of verse 22, uh, I do think that the word sign is used in the more general sense. um, While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. I think that is the more typical positive usage of sign. Uh, And then also what can be seen in verses 24 and 25 is when we get to them, is that uh, prophecy has um, incredible benefits in the meeting for the unbeliever, for the person who's uninstructed. So even though it's not a sign for them, it is beneficial for them. So verse 23, I'm going to read it again. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So verse 23 again highlights the effect of tongues on an unbeliever or an outsider. And again, it's not a positive story. There are a few interesting things to note here. Although generally speaking, the gifts or manifestations are God's prerogative, both in the gifting and in the energizing, it seems that tongues and prophecy are possibly universal gifts, things that anyone can do. It says here that the whole church comes together and it assumes that they can all speak in tongues. So that's very interesting, very interesting. Paul has already said that he's glad that he speaks in tongues more than anyone. Seems again like a weird statement if some couldn't do it. And here, even though Paul is being emphatic, he seems to assume that all theoretically could speak in tongues. Verse 24, along with the specific admonition to seek after prophecy, could be, those both could be indications that prophecy is a universal gift as well. In other words, it's something that everyone can do. Let's read verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So again, verses 24 and 25 are picking up on this theme that we've been seeing throughout 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is contrasting intelligible utterances and he singles out prophecy as an intelligible utterance with tongues. He's contrasting tongues, prophecy. Everyone prophesying in a meeting is not a problem, according to Paul. He says, but if all prophesy. So it's okay for prophecy to have an extensive um, uh, portion of the meeting. It is totally fine for that. For the believer, we've already seen the benefit of prophecy. Um, and earlier in chapter 14, it talks about how everyone will understand the message and therefore be encouraged, built up. Now, Paul is focusing on the outsider. What will prophecy do for the outsider? And prophecy serves to convict and lead that person to God. It literally can, if it's powerful and if it's on point and if it's being led by the Spirit of God, then the result could be the unbeliever or outsider being led to worship God. How powerful is that? How powerful is that? So he's contrasting tongues, which could turn off or warn away the outsider, with prophecy, which could lead an, a brand new person to your church to actually worship God and say that God is really real and he's really here in this meeting. So the conclusion is clear. In the public assembly, prophecy is much more important than tongues. And we're talking especially about tongues without interpretation, but even with interpretation, as we're going to see, Paul is going to put pretty severe limits on it in a meeting. And he does that because of the reasons that we've already seen. I want to point out too that the result of verses 24 and 25—that's why I'm teaching this class. That's why I'm teaching this seminar. That's why we're having this discussion about gifts or manifestations of the Spirit, because we want this result. We want someone coming in from the outside. When they hear the gifts in our uh, in our assembly, we want them to be convicted. We want them to be called into account. We want the secrets of their heart disclosed. We want them to fall on their face and worship God. That's what we want. We want that's what that's what our goal is from that time together. And according to the Bible, that happens through prophecy. That's how that takes place. It's prophecy. That's why we should encourage more prophecy in our meetings, more prophecy. We should always be seeking for more prophecy in our meetings. Okay, that's enough on that. We're going to transition now to the rest of the chapter, which is talking about the worship service as a whole and Paul's recommendations by the Spirit for the rest of the worship service. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 26. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So here is a list of things that people must have done during the worship service at Corinth. You know, these are things that people did. And though it's, I think it's possible for us to read Paul's words here sarcastically, I don't think that that's the best way. His point is not to list this uh, as like a bad list of things or, you know, oh, every one of you's got this or every one of you's got that. His point is is that everything that's done in the church should be done to edify others. That's the point that he's trying to make. And so this list is actually a helpful list for us because um, it allows us to see the diversity of things that people can do. And so that's why we allow for a variety of uh, spoken gifts or manifestations in our meetings. You could bring a song. You could bring a short sharing or a revelatory word. And the word revelation here could just be another word for prophecy. It's a little unsure what, what revelation means there. But I'll just call it a revelatory word. It could be a tongue with interpretation. could be a prophecy. And again, it this is not an exhaustive list. This list here in verse 26 is not an exhaustive list. It doesn't um, explicitly include prophecy unless we take revelation to be uh, like code for prophecy or something. Um and it does not include discernment of spirits, which I think is the discernment of prophecy, and he's going to get to discernment here later in this specific passage. So again, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. We could say that anything that's being uttered in the language of the people present uh, that's, that is meant to upgird and upbuild and uh, build up the people present in, the language, in their language, any uh, utterance like that, whether it's a Bible verse, a poem you know, whatever, any of those types of things, um, the, all those things are in play. All those things are are encouraged in a meeting, in our meetings. That's what we want during that time. Prayer, you know, all these things. So let's read verse 27 now. Verses 27 28. If any speak in a tongue let there be only two or at the most or at most 3 and each in turn and let someone interpret but if there's no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God So these 2 verses now govern the proper use of tongues in a meeting There are 3 instructions given 2 or 3 people in a meeting each in turn or one at a time and there must be an interpretation So if it can be done in turn, in other words, in order, then it can be controlled and is therefore not ecstatic utterance as phi notes. So if he points out that, look, if you can do it in turn, then you can control it. It's not ecstatic utterance. The spirit is subject to the speaker. Also, I want to point out that the word if begins, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue. So Paul makes space for the idea that tongues may not be in a meeting. It's not essential. Tongues is not an essential part of the meeting for Paul. Um, And I think we should, again, remember that we should not force the issue on this, uh, especially if new people are present, like it talks about, and we talked about in verses 22 and 23. So especially if new people are present, we should consider not having tongues. And again, I want the Spirit to lead this. I'm not trying to quench the Spirit. I'm not trying to forbid tongues, as we're going to find out later in verse uh, 39 here at the end of the chapter. Uh, But I'm just pointing out that Paul says, if any speak in a tongue. And the rule here is um, maximum of three. So if anyone speaks in a tongue, it could be zero. Paul's saying it could be zero, it could be one, it could be two, at the most three. So between zero and three people should speak in tongues in a meeting. So he's capping how much tongues get used. Okay, I think that's a really interesting point that gets made. In verse 28 it says um, but if there is no one to interpret if there's no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to god and i i pointed out earlier that the grammar earlier and the grammar here in both sections open it up to the possibility that someone could speak in tongues and another person who's known to have the gift of interpretation could interpret the tongue and again i'm going to concede that people smarter than me in greek Uh, say that that's a grammatical possibility, okay? I'm gonna admit that that is a grammatical possibility, but I do, again, think that the best way to proceed is for the person who actually does the speaking in tongues to interpret their own tongue. And if someone's not willing to do so, then they should refrain from speaking in tongues in the assembly. That's my recommendation. Even though this uh, opens it up to a, it seems like a wider uh, range of possibilities, I am open Uh, to that, or from a grammatical perspective, I still think in our meetings the best way to make sure that it stays decent and in order is for the person who actually speaks in a tongue to interpret their own tongue. So I just want to lay that out again. Some people will teach that, and so I just wanted to be very clear about that. Now let's continue on to what Paul says about prophecy in verses 29 to 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said, If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all being encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So, the thing that I want to point out here is is that uh, he had said, if, if, if you speak in tongues, if any speaks in a tongue, okay, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, and then in verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak. So this is a sharp contrast between the two things. He's opening the idea that possibly tongues would not be part of a meeting, and he's almost commanding that prophecy is part of a meeting. So again, that is the sharp distinction that he's drawing between these two things, and he, in his mind, he this is talking about with interpretation the tongues here mentioned in verse 27. So even even with interpretation, even crossing all those barriers, he's saying if, if, if. And with prophecy, he's saying let two or three speak. About this, I think it's interesting. Fee points out that um, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said does not mean that we should limit the meeting to three prophecies. That's not what it means. Because later... In verse 31, he says, For you can all prophesy one by one. You can all prophesy, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. You can all prophesy. And earlier it says in verse 24, But if all prophesy, again, saying that all can prophesy. So what Fi is saying is, is that if you have a prophetic part of your meeting and prophets are speaking in order, you know, in order, one at a time, that two or three should speak and then there should be a period of silence for people to weigh what is said. I thought this was a really interesting, really interesting point that Fee made. So, in other words, Paul is saying, everyone can prophesy, just do it two or three at a time and let people soak in what's being said. Let people reflect on what's being said. And if there needs to be any correction or any commentary added by the senior members, the people who are, uh, have uh, discernment, Uh, then they would speak up and and say something before the rest of the prophetic part goes on. I thought that was fascinating. Another thing that's sort of controversial in verse 29 is the use of the term prophets. Some people have made a big deal about the word prophet there, meaning someone with a specific ministry in prophecy. And um, he points out, and I think this is right, that the word prophet here most likely refers to any person who's prophesying, not to the office, the biblical office of a prophet. Now verse 30 says if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So when the prophetic time in a meeting is taking place, if someone is going too long, they're going on and on, and God is trying to reveal something to someone else in the room, then another can break in, and then the first one should submit and listen. And so again we see that the person, that both people are in complete control of what they are saying and that they are speaking. So again, this is not describing a state of ecstasy. Verse 31 says, uh, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So verse 31 reiterates again that everyone can prophesy in a meeting, but it should be done one by one, not talking over each other. And that the result is that everyone is taught and everyone is encouraged. I think this is beautiful. I think this is beautiful. And Paul is explaining why prophecy is such a big deal. Verse 32 says, And the spirits of the prophets are subjects to the prophets. So again, this is an explicit statement, but we've been seeing the clues throughout the whole time about tongues with interpretation and about prophecy that this is not ecstatic utterance. Each person can control when and how they speak. This is what Fee says about this. Quote, With these words, Paul lifts Christian-inspired speech out of the category of ecstasy as such, and offers it as a radically different thing from the mania of the pagan cults there's no seizure here no loss of control the speaker is neither frenzied nor a babbler if tongues is not intelligible it is nonetheless inspired utterance and completely under the control of the speaker so too with prophecy End quote. I thought that was great in verse 33 it says for god is not a god of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints so verse 33 underscores that God's very nature is not confusion but peace. And this provides a theological foundation for what Paul has already said. And as Fee notes, this would have provided a stark contrast to the pagan deities of the day. Worship in the Corinthian pagan cult was notoriously wild. Wild. They had, you know, temple prostitutes, and orgies, and all sorts of crazy stuff going on in their temple service. So the the True worship of God, as laid out here in 1 Corinthians 14, is a stark contrast to that. Um, People are under control, being led by the Spirit, but are under control. Now, I also want to point out that in the ESV, the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, is sort of placed in the next paragraph as if it belongs with verse 34. And I read it as if it belongs with verse 33. That's how Fee recommends it. That's how the REV translation recommends it. That's how a lot of people recommend, and there's a reason for that. Because verses 34 and 35 about the women's keeping silent in the churches. I'll, I'll go ahead and read them. It says the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I just want to point out that both the REV commentary and Fee's commentary. On 1 Corinthians, make great arguments to exclude these verses. There's actually very good early textual evidence that these verses do not belong, and there's good internal evidence that they do not belong. So um, I don't uh, I think that there's good reason to exclude them from you know the Bible, that these are not original part of the original text. Okay. But even if we permit them in the text, I'm gonna sort of address a couple concerns here because I know the women in our church. Uh, you know, have a right to be um, supported in this and to under, for us to understand this verse as best as we can, even if we permit it in the text. So even if we permit them in the text, the context demands that all can prophesy. No distinction of church participation by gender has been made to this point. And very specifically, the idea of women praying or prophesying in the assembly was specifically mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.5. So even my ESV study Bible, which is a conservative, uh, reformed, um, complementarian commentary, even my ESV commentary study Bible says that these verses are not to be taken as an absolute command. Rather, even if these verses belong, the sense is that they recommend family unity when in a public assembly. Therefore, women would be able to speak as long as they weren't openly contradicting their husbands. Okay. So the idea was in ancient times, when they would come together to meet, they'd have discussion time, and the husband might give his opinion of what was said, what was said in the sermon. And as long as the wife didn't blatantly contradict what her husband had just said, she was permitted to also speak. This is something that we understand from the culture of the time as well. And so this is not saying that women should be silent, okay? And I just want to point out that we feel strongly at Compass that women can and should not only be able to speak in the church, but also lead in the church. So we definitely want vocal women active in providing their gifts and talents to the church. Now let's read verses 36 to 38. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command. are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So the Corinthians, and the reason why he wrote this letter in large part was the Corinthians were challenging Paul's understanding of what it meant to be spiritual people. Um, And sometimes that word pneumaticos actually means spiritual people. So for the Corinthians, speaking in tongues, for example, was the major sign of spirituality. And Paul has responded by agreeing that tongues have a definite place. It is a legitimate spiritual uh, manifestation. It's a legitimate spiritual gifting but that their existence in a public meeting should be heavily regulated. If it happens at all, most, it should be three. Whereas prophecy can be, everyone can prophesy. So in these verses, Paul responds to the personal attacks against him. And he rhetorically asks them if they're the only ones with the word of God. And so if anyone wants to be called a prophet or a spiritual person, they should acknowledge that what Paul has written is what God really wants to happen in the assemblies. And in verse 38, uh, the whole if he does, if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Uh, it's not entirely sure what Paul means by this, but the point that I think we should take away is we should avoid this consequence by agreeing that Paul wrote what God wanted him to. And I think we all agree that God wrote that Paul wrote what God wanted him to. Now let's finish with verses 39 and 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, finally, we reach the end of the passage, and here is how Paul sums up everything that we've seen so far. He commands us to earnestly desire to prophesy. He commands us to earnestly desire to prophesy. And he commands us to not forbid speaking in tongues. That, that is a complete, uh, I think that's a complete representation of what we've seen in this passage. It is exactly what he's been saying this whole time. Prophecy is incredibly important. Paul thinks it is vital to a church meeting. Prophecy is vital. Speaking in tongues is optional. It's optional. What Fee says about it, quote, tongues are permissible in the assembly when accompanied by interpretation and may be experienced as much as one wishes in private, end quote. So you want to speak in tongues as much as you want to in your prior prayer life. That's great. Paul did it a lot. I think we should do it a lot. I think it's an important part of our Christian life. Uh, those of us who, who do it, I think it's a great thing. But in the meeting, it's optional. Prophecy is not. Prophecy should be the lifeblood of our prophetic part of our, our gift part of our meeting. We should be earnestly desiring to prophesy and bringing forth, um, you know, Bible quotes and poems and other things that can cut to people's heart where God's leading you that week to work on something, to think about something, to bring that thing to church. If it's something in the language of the people present entirely, that's what we want. That's what we want to seek after and specifically prophecy, specifically prophecy. Then finally, verse 40 is, is important. All things should be done decently and in order. That's the final commandment that Paul gives, and I think it's a great commandment for us to have in mind. And we've been doing a great job of this, but we should continue to keep that in mind. So to summarize what we've seen in the seminar on Corinthians, I just want to give a couple bullet points here at the end. Number one, the gifts and manifestations are available to any believer in Christ. However, we are all uniquely gifted. Number two, God is the one who energizes and enables us to manifest his power. Number three, we need each of us operating our gifts at full capacity for the body to function as designed. Number four, love should be in the center of all that we do. Next, when it comes to speaking in tongues, these are the things we learned about tongues. It is prayer or praise. It is directed to God. It is a language that we don't understand when we speak it. It is a language that usually the people listening don't understand. In a meeting, if it happens, it is to be interpreted. When new people are present, it's probably not necessary to speak in tongues. Now, when it comes to prophecy, it is a message from God, it is in the language of the people present. It edifies, exhorts, and comforts those present. In a meeting, it is to be discerned and weighed by people. We do two or three at a time, and then we give a period of reflection. When new people are present, believingly, with faith, it should be electric. It should cause them to worship God. No matter what, we are all to pursue it. We are to pursue it. And finally, there are many gifts or manifestations that can take place in a meeting as long as they are done decently and in order. And they include bringing a hymn, bringing a poem, bringing a short sharing, bringing a revelation, a tongue with interpretation, prophecy, discernment, and the list goes on. The list goes on. These are. That's not a comprehensive list. So, in closing, I just want to say, you know, th- thank you for listening. Thank you for your engagement in this. I hope that uh, this starts a really helpful conversation about uh, Corinthians and about giftings in the church um, and manifestations and how they should be used. And I look forward to your comments and thoughts on this as well. I am um, hoping to put together a final. Uh, teaching on speaking in tongues alone everything the bible says about speaking in tongues just to sort of answer some of the larger questions about tongues that you might have we might have together as a group we can work that topic further together as well so that's where i want to close this one god bless you